Welcome to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires limitless possibilities. This podcast is being brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Limitless was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community in order to show the world that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the executive director and founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marcelet. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marcelet, and it's October, which means it's Blindness Awareness Month. And we have some pretty fantastic episodes for you this month. And kicking us off today, we're going to be talking about what it's like to be low vision. So not totally blind and not totally sighted, kind of living somewhere in between. And my co-host today is Nika. Welcome, Nika. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us again. And we have a guest, Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Hello. Thanks for coming on our podcast. And this is really cool because Nika and Ashley have something in common, but this is the first time they're meeting. So mm, who wants to say what you have in common? Okay, so my eye condition is called Peter's Anomaly, and most of my vision is in my left eye. So I can see shapes and colors and light, but I can't see small details unless I'm up close. And I do have some vision in my right eye, but not as much. And that is mostly just color and light detection, but I can't actually actually see any shapes or outlines of anything. Wow, I have pre- prepared a lot of notes. But I guess I should probably just get used to explaining this in any other sense. So I have Peter's anomaly too, but what? Oh my gosh! Cat out of the bag. That's what they have in common, everybody. (laughs) But I didn't actually know that I had Peter's anomaly until my son was four months old. So yes, I did know I was visually impaired my entire life. That that was a given. But I didn't know I had Peter's anomaly until my son presented with the same set of um, characteristics. So for both of us, our eyes are like physiologically smaller and we both were born with cataracts and uh, I have glaucoma and Daniel is presenting with high pressure. So he's more than likely going to develop glaucoma. High pressure is associated with Peter's anomaly. But yeah, I've got my whole life without a name for my condition. So, wow, I didn't realize that. I was going to say, what did they think you had before? But so yes. just no diagnosis. So, I definitely obviously had the diagnosis of like cataracts. My cataracts were removed and I had nystagmus and glaucoma, like all of these things. I were on paper, were I was totally legit, like, you know, <laughs> but um, they, when we saw my son's um, pediatric ophthalmologist for the first time, he looked, he looked at my son, Daniel, and he looked at me and he's like, oh yeah, you guys have Peter's anomaly. And I'm like, what? Like everybody thought my mom like had rubella or something like that. And then I think she got razzed pretty badly, or at least mm. it kind of went under um, a lot of fire back in the eighties when I was born. Um, because no one in my family has any kind of, uh, vision loss, except for obviously like vision loss later in life, like in your seventies and eighties. So, so yeah. Right. 
Interesting. Wow. It's interesting that you said that smaller eyes are a characteristic of Peter's anomaly because I didn't know that because my doctors actually kind of it's been a weird dichotomy where some doctors say I have bilateral microphthalmia and others say I don't. And some people say that my eyes are small, but I don't actually have microphthalmia. And others say that I have a mild form of microphthalmia. So it's kind of like, I don't know if I have small eyes or not. But you huh. know what you know, your experience, right? Like all of these labels that are put onto us by medical professionals, like only help them make sense of the world. It doesn't really speak to our experience. Oh, yes. I never said it that way before. And, and what you can see too, which can mm -hmm. vary with, you can have the same eye conditions and see differently too. Right. So I yeah. didn't actually explain what I could see. Right. <laughs> I what just can you see? Explain it. So I am, I also can only see things at very close range. My vision has been, uh, has presented anywhere between 20 over 200 and 20 over 260, depending on the environment. Um, my vision is highly sensitive to lighting. I like to explain to people like when I'm looking at, uh, when I'm looking at anything, it's like looking at a puzzle and I can see the whole puzzle, but most of the pieces are out of focus unless I'm very directly focused in on them. So I could walk into a room and like, I could see a lot of different things, but I can't visually organize them because it's so much visual stimulation until I, until I focus in, I'm looking directly and I know what I'm looking for. Oh, so you have actually quite a bit more vision than me because I think mine is 20 over a thousand or even worse. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's explain that. Cause I'm sure people are like, what do these numbers mean? So to be classified as legally blind, you have to be 20 over 200 or worse. So that, that bottom number gets bigger and basically perfect vision is 20, 20. So 20 over 200 is 10% of your vision. So what you can see, what, what somebody with perfect vision can see at 200 feet a person with 10% vision would have to be 20 feet from that object to identify it. So 20 over a thousand is like, yeah, you're not going to, you're not seeing the same detail. So my vision hasn't been stable my entire life. My glaucoma has caused it to decrease a little bit. So I'm just wondering if Nika, if your vision has been like stable. Yeah, so um, my vision actually has been stable all my life. I never had glycoma or cataracts before. And, um, but there's a surgery that my doctor is uh, talking to me about. So I might actually even get some vision um, and make, and my vision might improve. Oh, yeah. My doctor's so not talking to me about that, but I don't go see my doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so just back to the whole low vision and living between worlds, um, a reminder to listeners, uh, I have retinitis pigmentosa, which is a degenerative eye condition. So in my sort of childhood teen years, I would consider myself low vision. I could read print. Um, but the other way you can be legally blind is if you have less than 20 degrees of your field of vision, which is like looking through a toilet paper roll. So when I was reading, I could only see a couple of letters at a time. If I was looking at somebody's face, I could only see one eye, the other eye, then the nose kind of piece, piece the face together. So I could see, 
and it looked like I could see and I could even make eye contact and read small print, but I was not seeing the whole picture. So I certainly can relate to kind of that not blind, not sighted experience that we're going to be talking about today. So Ashley, especially since you, you're kind of more on that 10% ish, eight to 10% vision, um, way of seeing, how do you navigate in the world? What is life like for you? Like mobility wise, do you need to use a white cane? Do you use it selectively? What, explain sort of what getting around is like. So it's, it's completely different in, in most situations. So, um, at nighttime, I need a cane. Um, I carry a cane with me at all times, folded up in my purse a lot of the time, but I, it comes out when I'm in new environments, um, when the ground is not even, or if there's a lot of stairs, I don't go down any set of stairs by myself without my cane. My depth perception is pretty shot. However, there's many times when I'm in, um, an area that has pretty good urban development where it's you know, like sidewalks that have been well taken care of, where I'm not potentially using my cane. And this tends to be in places where I have some sort of familiarity and I've developed a, like a mental map or a landscape of objects. Like I'm used to this red sign or red awning on the right type of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's um, really different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate to the the lighting and the contrast making a big difference because when I was younger, I, I didn't need to use a cane in the daylight most of the time, especially in a familiar environment. And I would memorize, I would memorize where all the obstacles were. Like, I know where there's a flight of stairs, so I'm good. It's just, it was the unexpected people that would pop up in my path occasionally right. that were always a surprise. And, and that's very common time that I would have my cane with me, like in any major events. Like I just remember the 2010 Olympics and like, I couldn't go anywhere in Vancouver without my cane. Like, yes. So yeah. What about you, Nika? Do you use your cane all the time or selectively? I'm supposed to use my cane all the time. And the times I don't, when I was younger, it used to be because I was ashamed of it or didn't like it. I'm over that now, but now I do it, the times I don't use it is more for practical reasons. Sometimes I have things in my hand, so I'll have a drink in one hand and an umbrella in one hand, and I just walk without it because I have no choice. Sometimes if there's a lot of people, I don't use it, and I just walk with it in like rest position, just straight up and down vertically. Mm -hmm. Beside me, I also kind of do the mental mapping things so a lot of times I'll walk with my cane out in front of me and I won't necessarily do like the full arc like I'm supposed to. I feel like we're all taught whatever technique and then we will adapt it and use what works for us and I think there's nothing wrong with that so. Okay so a lot of times on campus or in SkyTrain stations that I know well when I know the obstacles I'll just have my cane out straight in front of me but I won't actually swing it back and forth. I more use it for like identification purposes mm -hmm. to show that I'm legally blind. Right exactly so other people will see it and realize you have a visual impairment not so much that you need it to feel what's in front of you. Yes, or kind of like a, hey, if on the SkyTrain, I'm walking around kind of looking for a seat, it's not because I'm like, just know that there's a reason for that. 
So I'm assuming how people treat you all the, the plural you is going to vary from when you are using your cane and when you're not using a cane. I know for me, definitely when I didn't have the cane, I didn't feel like I could ask for help because I didn't quote unquote, look blind, whatever that means. And so people just didn't know why, why was I asking what bus is this? Or why was I asking for assistance in the grocery store? And I always felt really uncomfortable, but what is your guys' experience? Um, I would have to say that I get the worst responses from people when I, when I identify and advocate for myself, if I don't have my cane with me. So if I'm, if I get on a bus, even with like, um, like out here in Nanaimo, we just still use the like RC and IB cards. We don't have the, the TransLink version mm-hmm. of that. Um, and if I use it, I've had people question me if I don't have a cane. Like, and I just like recently went, when I went to get my second dose of the vaccine, I went to the front door of the building and there's somebody there who's screening people like, have you been to the moon? Have you been sick? Whatever. (laughs) I identified myself. I'm like, Hey, I'm visually impaired. Would I be able to get assistance to navigate my way through here by having somebody maybe like walk six to 10 feet in front of me, just so I know where to go. Cause I can't tell where the signs are. And she's like, you look fine. And I'm like, wait, gaslight. Like, mm-hmm. what does that even mean? Like, yes, I did brush my hair today. I should look fine. Like, what do you, how do you respond to that? You know, so like, frustrating. yeah. And when you walk down the wrong aisle, because they had all the, the arrows on the aisles during COVID, like people look at you, like you're committing some sort of like horrible crime. And you're like, I just didn't see it. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and if you don't have your cane out, then you're just welcoming like criticism. Yeah, it's interesting because of course people have perceptions when they see the white cane, make certain assumptions as well and can talk down or whatever. But then if you don't use it, then they're questioning, why are you asking for help? Or like you're trying to take advantage of something or I don't know. I don't know what that is exactly. So neither feels good, right? Okay, let's talk about reading. So I described, you know, I could see a couple letters at a time. So I was able to probably hold the book even a normal distance from my face when I was reading. I wore glasses. I think when I was reading, it it would look like I was sighted, I would assume to most people, but they wouldn't realize. So, you know, I had like teachers at school ask me to read out loud in the class. And then everybody heard me read like I was in grade two as I (laughs) tried to figure out the words slowly, which was super embarrassing. Um, What's reading like for you, Ashley? I use, well, I wear glasses. And so even with my glasses, my my corrected vision is still 20 over, you know, 240 kind of average there. So when I want to read something small, like, and it's not digital, I'm using my magnifier. And I definitely don't prefer that. I'm very big fan of digital information. I don't like paperwork. It's cumbersome. It's way less functional and more difficult to navigate around a piece of paper if you can't just tab your way around. Mm. Um, So I infinitely prefer uh, the digital format. I also do not find the standardized 14 point large print font. I'm using like air quotes as I'm describing this useful in any sense at all, because I can only see fonts without magnification, without a handheld magnifier. that's like 24 or higher. 
Okay. And with a magnifier, it's around 20 that I could see. So, That's pretty big. So not most things in life are not that size. No, but if you ask for large print anything, you're only going to get 14 mm-hmm. point font, which is, yeah. you know, a huge part of what it means to be in that spectrum of, of vision loss. Like you, not every person who's visually impaired is going to benefit from a 14 point font, me being the case. Like, Okay. So did you learn Braille in school then? No, I was actually heavily, it was heavily stressed that I used my functional vision the best that I could. And I definitely have a bone to pick with uh, that whole attitude and mindset because when I was younger and I was, you know, learning to read picture books where the print, where the the font is large and less cluttered Mm -hmm. uh, was no problem. And then all of a sudden you hand me a novel and my relationship with my parents very rapidly deteriorated because they couldn't get me to read a novel because it was visually taxing you know it's hard to focus on one thing at a time um and I looking back like I've chosen to learn braille and my braille is horrendous I can basically write a wedding invitation in like uncontracted braille and that's pretty much where it ends <laughs> um but but I am I feel like I, I kind of feel resentment that I was mm-hmm. never taught Braille and that I was never taught to use a screen reader because when you're taught to use your functional vision, like there's, it's, it's very taxing and I just really struggled and I could have been much more academically successful if I was given the ability to transition between say something like Zoom text to JAWS or from large print to Braille. Totally. Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, I struggled to read all through high school. I think my first audio book was the whatever novels we had to read in grade 12 after struggling through everything up until that point and handing in book reports late constantly and, and using zoom text initially. And I remember, of course there's a learning curve, but once I learned how to use a screen reader, I was so much more efficient because obviously you can just sort of tab over here and use keyboard commands and, you know, sit back and let it read to you. Whereas when, when you're trying to find things with your vision, oh, so tedious. Nika, what about you? How do you take in print material? I actually kind of also have um, a problem with kind of the way I was taught in school, but for different reasons, because my eyes are very clouded um, and you can't see my iris or my pupils, people always assume that I can't see. And I was actually always discouraged from using my functional vision. I grew up reading Braille and using a screen reader, and I'm kind of more of a visual learner. So with Braille, and especially using like a Braille note or a Braille sense, I could only read line by line. And then when I would use my laptop to read things, it just wasn't good enough because I was only getting audible feedback and I had a chemistry tutor I remember in grade 11 and 12 and she would do the equations with me on my iPad Um, and she had one of those like pens that you could draw the equations with on the iPad and that worked so much better for me instead of doing it on just line by line on a braille display and my school wouldn't let me use an iPad to do my chemistry even though 
just visually with the layout of all the equations and crossing things out, it just doesn't really work with Braille or even with fractions in general. It just works so much better uh, using print. And in university, Braille is non-existent. So I do have to do everything on a laptop, which is why I resorted to doing a lot of things on my iPad again, like reading my textbooks uh, for diagrams and stuff. I kind of like to do a mix of both. I can also only read things that are above font size 20 with my naked eye and then things that are smaller, I have to use a high powered magnifier. And sometimes I just enjoy it more. Sometimes I enjoy reading a few pages just in print and sometimes I wanna give myself a break with the screen reader. I kind of like mixing and matching and doing a combined approach. I totally feel you there. I like you're, you're, you're coming at it with a slightly different angle, but I feel like we're saying the same thing that like, we really both feel like we had the options of, of all that we could benefit from in our education so that we could choose where it's the most appropriate for us. It's often like we're dicta it's dictated to us what we're supposed to be using. And we're the only ones who could really be saying that. Totally. Like if I had it my way, I would do math and chemistry and physics all using my vision and then English and um, social studies using just assistive technology or Braille. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting that assumptions were made like, so I, I'm, I'm going to make some assumptions myself that people looked at your acuity, Ashley, and, and were like, oh yeah, she should use her vision. And people looked at your actual eyes, Nika, and decided you should use Braille. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I was wondering, like, Ashley, are your eyes also like clouded? So there is clouding to my corneas, like despite having cataracts being removed when I was younger. So, but my acuity tested in an optimal environment says that I should be able to see a lot more than I can functionally from one environment to the next. Mm -hmm. So I just, uh, one very common, like not common, but one very profound concern that I have for my son going into education is that he is going to be given the opportunity to learn all of his options and be able to navigate as needed from day to day and from course to course and you know from year to year as to what he needs and not just based on something that somebody who maybe ha is from a point of privilege uh, who is looking at charts and numbers could really even say yeah and I mean I have to like I feel like I have to put in a plug for the teachers of the visually impaired I know they do really they do these functional assessments to figure out the, what is the right approach for kids with low vision. And it does include, you know, lighting and contrast and print size and all the things. Like I think a lot since, since I was in school, things have improved a lot. They've figured out a lot of, a lot more things, you know, there's more technology, there's more choice in what's available to help. So, but, but I remember, you know, certain classrooms where the teachers just chose to have the blinds closed all the time, which was harder for me to see than another room where, you know, maybe I was positioned with the light behind my desk and that was better for me. So it, it really does vary from situation to situation and year to year, especially in a situation where you have like a degenerative eye condition. So 
yeah, kind of need to be checking those things out all the time. I think that like, it's important for these things to happen, like these assessments to not just happen at the start of school. Like, I think like there's certain significant educational transition points, like going from, uh, you know, uh, kindergarten versus grade one to three versus grade four to six versus because Mm -hmm. you're dealing with different content you're dealing with different expectations like I bet you if they had gone in and reassessed me when it came to reading novels I'd have been on the John's train right away like you know I cannot visually organize a large amount of text like I love literature and I thankfully like yay audiobooks <laughs> because oh, yes. I, if I didn't have audiobooks I wouldn't have my love that I do for literature but yeah oh me too totally yeah I, I mean I wonder too if it had to do with you know just the time in history of the perception of blindness a little bit like mm-hmm. so if if you were able to access print maybe you'd have a better chance of being hired down the road because how the heck were you going to get a job if you were a braille reader only or I mean I don't know I'm just I'm I I don't know how it was but I feel like I wonder if that played in as well kind of that yeah like I look at it now and like thankfully I've learned to be a fairly adaptable person who can advocate for myself but there are many times that I'm like I just wish I could have my screen talk to me right now (laughs) (laughs) Like I deal with a lot of um, technical tools that uh, vary visually, very distinctly from one to the next. And um, there's different, it's like downloading a bunch of apps on your phone and there's like a million different developers with a million different standards for what something should look like. And I would just love to be able to, for something, just have like a screen reader, have the, um, and, and I should say this, like there's something about like, when you when you're deciding what's accessible and not not accessible um that it doesn't always explain what's usable so like my my employer for example has been terrific in the sense that they would just get me any software I needed but that doesn't mean I know how to use it mm-hmm. <laughs> you know or that doesn't necessarily mean that I have um you know like because I've been conditioned to focus on using my functional vision like I walk around with a handheld magnifier and I know my phone can talk to me like but I'm just Uh, not used I'm just not accustomed to it because I was always it's ingrained like you have to use your vision you have vision that you should use and it's it, it creates habits that are that can have really in a lot of ways like set me up to fail like that's interesting yeah so the iPhone, the, the smartphone that they now talk off the shelf, like anyone can turn speech on, on their phones, but, and you're, you're using one that can do that yet. The habit is to look at it. You actually use a magnifier with your phone. I don't get, you know, trying to do that with a toddler. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, it causes me an, an, incredible amount of stress just using my phone so there are days when somebody will message me on my phone I'm like I hate this person why are they doing this I'm like they don't know that I'm holding my magnifier that I'm also trying to juggle juggle a toddler like that it's like visually very exhausting to Mm -hmm. use it that way but like I have a choice to use a different way but yet I it's not ingrained in my habits to do it that way yeah yeah no (laughs) I I get it there's lots of cool apps out there that would help me, but the learning curve, I don't have time for that. So I carry on doing it the hard way sometimes. 
<laughs> but it's, I don't even, in my, all my creative ways of coming up with doing things, I rarely ever think of the, the break that my eyes could have, like the creative like way that I could do things if I didn't have to squint and get visual fatigue. Does the zoom function help you? Like, um, for example, like triple tapping the screen to zoom in? So yes and no. I, I I find that sometimes when I do it, I'm like, what is my phone doing now? Like I sound like such an old lady about it. So um, I don't have an iPhone. I feel like the zoom in function was far superior on the iPhone. But the, I like that with my Android device that I have more customization within apps for high contrast and like modifying the, the default print size. So um Yes. So the answer is yes and no. But okay. you know what? Even when I double, when, when I triple tap or whatever, double tap in or whatever I accidentally do when I'm not paying attention, it's not big enough most of the time. So yeah. Nika, do you use your phone visually or do you use voiceover? I do a combination of both. So usually when browsing the internet or reading emails or on social media, I use it. I use, um, voiceover I'd say probably 90% of the time on my phone and then when reading like shorter emails or quick messages or when I'm on YouTube and Netflix and different apps like that I turn it off and just use zoom but on my iPad I have a setting where I can make the print naturally bigger so I almost maybe 20% of the time I'll use voiceover again for the internet but almost uh, always I use zoom on my iPad hmm so it's really just not cut and dry at all. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's, I think that's something that really speaks to what it means to be visually impaired or low vision or legally blind, but still having vision. Like it's just, you're, it's, it's, it's not black and white at all. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and you're, you're question, you're questioned a lot of the time on when you like, on what accommodations you need or assistance that you need because you kind of have to come up with it it's yourself. Like people think it's really weird that I ask people to like direct me by walking six feet in front of me, right? Cause they are like, they wanna take my arm and like walk me through like I'm going to fall apart, you know? Like, and nobody yes, who's wide is going to do that, right? So mm. it's just, it's a complete spectrum. And people, I always say this, like people, like to make the world around them they like to understand it in a very convenient way and if you don't fall into the black or white blind or sighted like it's like their 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 assumptions just break and they get so confused and lost and they're just not listening to to us at all so let's talk about social situations with low vision so (laughs) i mean i have I, i have thoughts but i don't want to steal all the thunder (laughs) But one thought that comes to mind is, you know, you can see well enough that there's people, but not identify necessarily who those people are. So that can result in people wondering why you're not saying hello or why you're not smiling at them or why you didn't recognize them when, you know, it seems like you noticed them. You, they can tell you, you acknowledge there was a person, but not who it was. Have you had that situation? Either of you? Oh, can I share an awkward blind story? Of course. Please. Um, so this was a few years ago, and I was at one of my friend's apartments, and she has a pool in it. 
and we were swimming at the pool and I asked if anyone was there and she said it was just the two of us. Um, so we were swimming around and doing flips and she was also wearing a really, really cute bikini. This is important for the story. Um, it was a really nice bathing suit and it was such a pretty color. And I was wearing goggles while swimming and I can't see when I'm wearing goggles. So I got up um, from doing my flip, walked over, saw there was a person and I assumed it was my friend. And I'm like, so I love your bikini from Target. It is so cute. Like you look so cute in it. And it was a shirtless guy in the pool because <laughs> he showed up. <laughs> So, like, I could see it was a person, but I clearly couldn't tell they were a different gender and wearing a completely different article of clothing. You are so not alone there. Oh, man, if it weren't for COVID, I'd probably have a lot more stories readily at hand that I could relate to. I know, but yeah. I am loving this anti-social life. Like, let me tell you, like, it takes so much pressure off in a lot of ways. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, you're definitely not alone. I've had some incredibly awkward experiences in my life thinking that someone wasn't who they were like, yeah. <laughs> oh, I used to, uh, I used to go shopping with my mom. Well, with any, well, yeah, when my, I guess it was with my mom when I was a kid and I liked to feel the clothes on the rack. Like I would just sort of drag my hands along the racks and feel all the clothes and I would end up touching other shoppers, uh, mannequins, <laughs> all sorts of things or <laughs> talking to people thinking they were part of my family and they were other yeah. shoppers <laughs> or have either of you ever seen a reflection of yourself in the mirror and thought it was a person and said like sorry or hi or like yes something into them <laughs> yeah but with with tunnel vision uh, you know I, I always had a hard time finding a seat in a social situation so it was like trying to scan for where there was an emptiness for me to sit in has always been really hard. And I mean, it's just as hard when you're, when you can't see, you know, really low vision too. But, um, I had some embarrassing situations of sitting on people or my cousin was lying on the couch and I flopped down on top of his stomach when I was like a teenager, <laughs> totally mortified. <laughs> uh, that happens to me on transit all, like a lot of times. Yeah. I find that it, I get really anxious in busy places. Like it's hard for like, for like for having, for being in that eight to 10% for seeing quite a bit for not seeing very much at all. Like it's so stressful when you're trying to like be in a busy place. Like I avoid malls. I avoid events. I, it, it's so stressful. Like, I think I have like a lot of underlying anxiety of just dealing with situations that are have a lot of visual stimulus like and it just I there are times when I ask where something is and like it'll be right there mm -hmm. because I just am not looking directly at it with all my focused energy <laughs> I've asked I've walked into a room and be like where's my kid and my husband will be like he's right there on the, on the floor next to you I'll be like winning at mom life <laughs> like, you know <laughs> But yeah. yeah, well, yeah, I, I find going to new places, I've always found that pretty stressful of like trying to find, first of all, find the door to get in, find the bathroom, find a place to sit, find your friends, you know, it's, it's constantly testing 
your abilities to figure out your environment. And it wasn't easier when I had more vision than I do now. It was just as hard. And I think the expectation, because people assumed I could see more than I could. So they expected me to be able to find things easier, but it wasn't easy. No, but it puts a lot of pressure too. like, uh, I find that, you know, I, I don't have a, a lot of like a huge, like wide net of friends who are blind or visually impaired, but I have a few. And of those few people, I'm the one with the most sight and I'm like responsible for everything. Mm-hmm. So like, and it's yes. not my friends that are doing it. Say my, fr- a couple of friends and I will be like crossing a street and they'll have canes and I won't or something like that I've had people come up and be like why aren't you watching out for them and I'm like I don't know who's supposed to be the one to be responsible for everybody <laughs> like, you know so it puts a lot of pressure yes if you're the one who can see just a little bit better than other people it does so. yeah even for things like yeah I've been in that I used to be in that situation and going to a restaurant and I'm the only one that can read print. So I'm the one that's going to read the menu and I'm the one that has to figure out the bill. And it's, I hated that actually. I'm so happy that I'm not that one anymore. (laughs) Although now you can like read menus online and it's a little bit easier, but yeah, it used to be really hard. I kind of have a similar thing when it comes to sometimes being the person who can see more with other blind or visually impaired people it depends because my vision isn't great but it's also not the worst and I have a lot of friends who have only like perception so a lot of times um, I'll help someone with social media or pictures or editing and I feel really really bad having to say no because I'm like I I'm sorry I don't know what this is the picture of like or Mm -hmm sorry, I'm not able to make the audio and the video perfectly match up because I can't move things like millimeter by millimeter in iMovie. Or totally different, but like navigating a buffet. I have, I've received help from somebody who's low vision before and, and, you know, they're like, it looks like a cookie that could have raisins or maybe it's chocolate chips i don't really Whoa, know you do not want to be around any situation where there are raisins and cookies that is not <laughs> I agree. friends don't let friends eat raisins no matter what their vision is okay like if you think there could be raisins you hightail it out of there but but can you tell if the raisins are chocolate chips ashley if what you it- can't if you can't you don't go there you like, don't yeah, take don't the risk. It. it's not worth it <laughs> Oh, geez. But yeah, anyways, buffets, not the best, not the best thing when you're, when you can't really see, (laughs) you can have a lot of surprises on your plate later. (laughs) Yes. No kidding. I think too, like, like I, I feel like a lot of my life is like, I'm living with imposter syndrome because my completely blind or, or much more low vision friends think that I can see and then people like, and then other people can't. And it's like, you just, it's like, I'm beginning to understand my, my teenage identity crisis is now, like, because it's just how it, you never fit. You never yeah. fit to what people conveniently where they want you to fit ever on any level, socially, technology wise, any of it. Yeah. You just can't win. Like there's just sometimes no winning. Well, I'm sure I'm going to, I don't know. In, well, at least for me in my family, you know, I'm 
blind and maybe, maybe because, so if you're like the only one in the environment, then you're, you're blind. But if you're with a bunch of visually impaired people and you are the one with the most vision, then you're sighted, but you're the same person in both environments. So like, which one are you? And really you're neither. It's so, yeah, it's so obscure. Okay. So how does this impact people's expectations of you? I think people expect way too much or not enough. Yeah. Like you will never, ever meet anybody's expectations, regardless of what they are. Mm -hmm. I always find I almost have to just overcompensate for everything I do. I feel just so obligated to prove, like, especially because I have the issue of um, people thinking I can't see is almost to overuse my vision instead of using the complimentary Braille um, screen reader method that I really, really like. I feel so much pressure to just make sure I'm always put together. And if I ever just have a day where I happen to want to wear like sweatpants and a hoodie, I feel bad because then I think people will think that I'm wearing it because I don't know that it's like sweatpants and a hoodie and it's just this urge to overcompensate and sometimes I feel like I can't really be myself or just kind of fit out of that box just because I'm almost trying to be so far out of the box that I don't even allow myself to go in the box when I just feel like I want to be in the box I totally hear that yeah Although I love sweatpants, but I've had a kid, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is great. Yeah, uh, or even just like the makeup thing, like my, I'm all about like, oh, like, you know, people assume blind people can't have their hair done and wear makeup, and I'm always breaking down that stereotype, but sometimes I just might not be in the mood for that. You know, it's really interesting because I have lost a lot of vision and um, so when I, when I had a choice, I didn't want to use my cane. I didn't want to tell people I was blind. I didn't want to ask for help. And then gradually I had to, I had to start using a cane. It was not safe for me not to, I had to ask for help sometimes because I wasn't going to be able to achieve what I wanted to, if I didn't. And I had to call myself or, you know, acknowledge that I was blind and actually life got easier because I didn't have the choice. And I feel like when you're, when I was low vision, I could, I tried to fake it all the time. I tried to make people think I could see more than I could. Even my parents, I would pretend to see things they were pointing out to me because I felt like I would disappoint them if I admitted that I couldn't see them. But with everybody, it was like downplay the visual impairment so that people will see me as an equal or something but it was exhausting. It was exhausting. exhausting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So when I didn't have the choice anymore, it was like, Oh, like I can go to the grocery store and ask for assistance. And I don't have to explain anything because they see the white cane. I can bump into something and not feel embarrassed to the same degree because I have a white cane and people know it's not that I'm a klutz. It's because I am visually impaired. Or if I do accidentally sit on somebody, they know why there's like an explanation for it. Right. So it actually got easier when I lost more vision, which is probably not what most people would assume. I've heard that from a lot of people who are 
you know, very close to totally blind or just have light perception, they're like, man, like it would be just easier for you if you, you know, didn't have any vision. And I'm like, yes, it would be. But, and I think that it's, I feel like there is something to be said about that choice. Like, mm-hmm. because I don't feel like I'm necessarily always making a choice. Like I'm just, you know, like there are just certain parts of my life where I am I I gravitate towards a more like a more visual I don't know how to quite put this but like I I prefer like I love bright colors like I love anything yellow and orange and pink and you know I like to be creative and I like to draw and I like a little bit of like to try and produce very crappy graphic art (laughs) like you know and like I'm very artistic visually right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't serve me when I walk into no frills and all the cans are yellow with black print. I'm like, I don't know where I am now. Like, how do I even find these black beans anymore? Right? So it's not like I'm trying to like, I'm making a choice to, to not be seen as somebody who's visually impaired. Like I'm just being authentic yeah. to myself. Right? Like, mm-hmm. and the thing is, is like, certainly there have been points in my life where I would choose to want to be seen in a certain way. And let's not talk about job interviews. Mm. Um, but generally speaking, like I I live in a world where I'm both and it, it has nothing to necessarily do with what I'm choosing for the convenience of it. It's what my life is. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it, we shouldn't have to anything. We shouldn't have to fake seeing. We shouldn't have to fake that we're not you know fake blindness or or carry the cane just so people will like we should be able to just be how we are but the world is not designed for that sadly um i think that there's a lot to be said for the social model of disability like i don't particularly feel like being low vision is my biggest problem in this world. I feel like the arbitrary rules set up by people in privilege are my problem in this world. Like, you know, or, or people's need to want to fit me into a box. Mm-hmm. That's what's wrong with what's, you know, that's where my, where my struggles come from. They don't come from the fact that I can't see very well, yeah. you know, because I can make that work, but is the world going to work with me is the problem. Well, and I, I don't think I said this at the beginning, but 92% of people who are legally blind have our low vision, have some level of vision, anywhere from light perception up to 10% vision. So really the majority are this, this gray area, not black, not white, not blind, not sighted, somewhere in between. And yet we kind of have this belief in society that you're one or the other. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting to think about because blind actually technically doesn't look like anything right not black (laughs) as many people think or I guess if people kind of do the whole like oh sunglasses cane frumpy clothes like the that's like the image and then as soon or clouded eyes and then as soon as people who may have a condition that affects the back of their eyes so their eyes look quote normal um a lot of those people apparently get accused of making up their disability Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, that's interesting because I feel like people are trying to compliment me when they're like, oh, I always forget that you can't see very well. And I feel really sulky about it. I'm like, but that's kind of a part of who I am. So why would you bother forgetting about that? Like, you know, like, <laughs> can't I just be me? Like, 
I don't, I really actually don't like it at all. And people are like, I forget that you're, you know, legally blind. It bothers me because it's a part of me. Like, and they, people deliver this in a sense that I should be somehow honored that they say that. Like, and I, it's, it chokes me up. Like, Mm, yeah. It's like the compliments that are, they are meant to be compliments and it's coming from a nice place, but it's just not, that's not what it is. Even with me a couple of weeks ago, I went to an orthopedic surgeon appointment and the resident was talking about kind of um, how I'm really amazing for being able to go out, like leave the house and actually go to appointments. And um, he was talking about how like getting a back brace for me wouldn't be a good idea because I lean over to see things and I should be able to have the usable vision. And he was saying that if he were in my position, he didn't think that he'd be able to even leave the house or go out. So he was saying how amazing I am for even doing that. Yeah, but he's, (sighs) this is, so we're in a time and place where a lot of different demographics are asking us to check our privilege and check and check ourselves our self-awareness people you're say right. a lot of things out mm-hmm. of the kindness of their hearts but it's out of the deepest lack of self-awareness mm-hmm. yeah and that it's it's ableism and, and it definitely exists and nobody's really uh talking about it oh but i'm going to be talking about it Yes. Well, and we did do an episode on ableism. So look back for that. It was a good one. But uh, tell us about your podcast, Ashley. Right. So my friend Jill and I, I've known Jill for a very long time, and she's actually um, visually impaired as well. Uh, We are very, how do I put it? We don't really have a plaque. Like we, we don't really have a soapbox, but we are very interested in hearing the stories of anybody with disabilities because there's just not a place for that that's not political if that makes sense like I feel like there's a lot of underlying agendas to accomplish certain things and like depending on the platform or the podcast but we want to hear and learn more from people because as I said we are in a time and space in this world where we're asking people to listen and so our podcast that we're launching at the end of October is called a seat at the table dialogues on disabilities and we just we're very curious and want to have a place for people to share without judgment uh, and to a place where we can also listen as well about their narratives and their stories I love that can't wait to listen to that we're we're definitely not very uh, I'm not very censored there so I will I will put that out there Um, but I think it's important to have difficult conversations and to ask difficult questions without judgment or without fear of reprisal. Like, you know, we're asking to check ourselves on, you know, our socioeconomic privilege, on our backgrounds, but we're not really asking that about ability. And so Mm -hmm. I'm really excited. I've like, I shockingly have learned way more about what it means to have a disability through that then I have my entire life living with a disability because I think you become so disengaged um just trying to like not cope but like adjust and um evolve through this world with your disability that you you really don't stop and realize that 15 percent of the world actually has a disability so Mm -hmm. 
Well, to wrap this up, what do you wish, what do each of you wish people understood about living with low vision? I think the biggest thing for me is that it's so important to just be open and willing to have discussions. I'm willing to answer any questions um, if they're coming just from a place of wanting to learn. And I think we all as people have so much room to grow and learn things. And also just to remember that every individual is different. So maybe I'm the first visually impaired person who you talk to and someone else's answers might be different to mine or I might be the fifth uh, visually impaired person you talk to and maybe everyone else's answers were the same and I'm the first one who's different and I think it's such a spectrum. Mm-hmm. What about you, I definitely Ashley? would echo exactly what you're saying like just stop and listen just like you would for any other human being. Yeah I just I've, I've had a lot of experiences where people will get upset or defensive or be unwilling to learn and it's helping no one, you know? So stop and listen. That's all I have to say. Don't, don't, don't be judgmental. Well, try your best to be aware of your judgments because I guess we all have them and be willing to check them. Good advice. Thank you so much, both of you for being with me for this conversation. I think this is really important for people to understand and kind of think, think beyond the black and white to the shades of gray that we, most of us are right. Thank you for being here. Thank you. You've been listening to limitless, the blind beginnings podcast. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic request, please send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Please share our podcast, especially during blindness awareness month and join us next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted, along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca and also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.